Back in June 2020, an unusual announcement popped up in a bunch of dark web forums. Normally, the dark web is filled with ads for stolen credit card numbers or personally identifiable information. But back then, there was this call for papers. You know, like the call for research papers academic conferences always have. Uh, I'm reading from their ad right now. Non-standard methods of extracting material, admin, shells, roots, bases. Um, This is John DiMaggio. He's a researcher at Analyst One, a threat intelligence company based in Virginia. And he remembers seeing the ad when it came out and thinking how odd it was for someone to ask a bunch of people on the dark web for research papers on hacking. In which you as a submitter are, are looking to find a new creative way to hack something or to, to program or code something that conducts a, a hacking function. It could be theory. It's not that they're actually- it was a weirdly highbrow way to get the attention of what was essentially an audience of cyber criminals. They're calling it like in the name of education and the criminal community, helping out the, the young guys and gals coming up. Cyber criminals who were apparently happy to spend time writing thoughtful academic papers. The summer paper contest, as they called it, generated a huge amount of interest. There were literally dozens and dozens of entries with titles like How We Wrote the First Ransomware for Android. Some of the papers touched on cryptography. Others provided tips on how to stay anonymous. The contest was sponsored, as it turns out, by a group that was pretty good at dreaming up novel approaches to get themselves noticed. In fact, word of mouth helped put this new Russian ransomware group on the map. They call themselves Lockbit. And just a few months after that contest, they took the world by storm. There's been a lot going on with Lockbit ransomware. Lockbit. 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 Most dangerous types of ransomware. Lockbit. And we're talking to John DiMaggio about all of this because he managed to do a remarkable thing. He spent more than a year inside Lockbit's operation, undercover, watching as Lockbit grew from a ragtag gang of cyber criminals into the most prolific ransomware syndicate the world has ever seen. I'm Dina Temple-Rustin, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, a journey into Lockbit. For more than a year, John DiMaggio infiltrated the group using an online persona, and he discovered not only how the Lockbit ransomware syndicate operates, but also how it's building its future, too. And his secret weapon? This Lockbit, it's been like such a gift because they just won't shut up. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. 
To place Lockbit in the pantheon of ransomware groups, you just need to look at the numbers. Last year, they were responsible for about 44% of the total ransomware campaigns launched. 44%. None of its competitors come even close to that. And some of their attacks? They were epic. Well, hackers have carried out a cyber attack against the city of L.A.'s housing authority. The Canadian town of St. Mary's, Ontario, has been hit by a ransomware attack. Our sick kids' hospitals recovering from a second cybersecurity incident in recent weeks. Ransomware from a gang called Lockbit has infected Royal Mail computers used to print customs labels. But a few years ago, back when that intelligence analyst John DiMaggio first started following Lockbit, it was just another cyber criminal gang. Just another group of guys trying to make a name for themselves, struggling to recruit talented people who could help them launch ransomware attacks. Subcontractors, if you will. And back in 2020, when a Lockbit job posting came up, John DiMaggio, and probably lots of researchers like him, just went ahead and applied. 80% of success is showing up, right? I approach them as when they open their doors for affiliates when they're, when they're recruiting, I apply. And when I, once you apply, you get in. Well, maybe not really in, but you'd get a virtual interview, and then they'd give you an assessment test to gauge if you really have the skills they need or if you're just a script kitty who talks big and can't code. The, the, the assessment test that they gave me, I wasn't, I wasn't that qualified enough, which, which was okay. I didn't expect to get through, um, but they let me remain in this talks channel. And, and Remain in the talks channel. Talks is a peer-to-peer instant messaging service that cyber criminals just love. In fact, a lot of today's ransomware negotiations happen in talks. So if you're in the talks channel for Lockbit, well, you're kind of a fly on the wall, watching cyber criminals at work, in the wild. But John wanted to be more than a fly on the wall. He wanted to engage. So he baited the person who's thought to be the leader of the group, a guy who goes by the name Lockbit Sub. First, he offered Lockbit Sub a chance to do what hackers can't resist trash talk other hackers. Then he asked him what he thought of a rival hacking game and whether it had been infiltrated by a snitch. Lockbit Sup took the bait and even invited John into a separate channel to chat in private. That's gold for a researcher. The only problem for John was that Lockbit is a Russian ransomware gang and he doesn't speak Russian. So he had an idea. So I started off the conversation with German and of course then he says, I don't speak German, but here's the thing. All of them speak a little bit of English because those are the primary victims. So I guess you speak German. Is that the idea? Oh, I, I don't. I just knew that Lockbit didn't. So that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I start speaking broken English. I'm like, do you speak English type of thing? And and they'll be like, yes. And I'll say, OK, well, why don't we try to communicate like like this? And then I just have to remember to make sure my English isn't too good as I communicate. But it works. And, and that's exactly what I did with, with Lockbit. And what he found was a guy who not only exaggerated his accomplishments and trash-talked other groups, but also a man who fundamentally understood, in a way few people did, that in order for the ransomware industry to get next level, it needed to be run more like a traditional business. So he decided to do just that. And his first step was to turn Lockbit into more than just a ragtag bunch of hackers. He decided to turn it into a brand. They constantly did things to get their name out there, and then they capitalized on opportunity. He started with a logo, red, white, and black, a little retro-looking, and he put it on everything they touched. 
It was on their website, on their email signatures, on the letterhead of their ransomware messages. And then, with a little twist, he tried a different kind of IRL branding. Then they, at one point, paid people to tattoo it on their bodies, and it was for between $500 and $1,000. And I just, when I heard that, I'm like, there is no way anyone is going to tattoo the name of a ransomware brand in their logo on their bodies. And there's quite a few people who did it. Wow. That's just crazy to me. But this went well beyond just getting the word out. Lockbit's leader was thinking strategically. He began studying the inefficiencies and bottlenecks in the ransomware business model. What was preventing the average hacker from launching a successful attack? And his solution was something he called Lockbit Red. He branded it publicly as Lockbit 2.0. Think of it as ransomware made easy. Not a great coder, but want to make some ransomware money? Not a problem. Lockbit makes it point and click. It created an administrator's panel to help conduct and control attacks. It was like a dashboard to help hackers keep track of all the ransomware they had released out into the world. Lockbit improved the encryptor so attackers could steal data faster. There were even push notifications that would call attackers when a victim responded to a ransom demand. So now a budding ransomware operator could look at their phones and see a notification that their mom had called or that someone had retweeted their tweet and, oh, my ransomware victim just replied. He took what used to require, you know, weeks of being on a network and manually entering commands and writing scripts and stuff. And he automated it with a graphical interface for everybody. Now, to be fair, LockBitSup wasn't the first person to try this, but he was the first to do it that well. LockBit's central management console incorporated all the disparate elements of a ransomware attack and put it in one place. So in other words, they made a process that was convoluted, slow, and putting data outside of their own control. And they made it fast, efficient, uh, and going into their own infrastructure to use. Constantly improving and upgrading LockBit was a lot of work. And LockBit SUP said as much. In fact, he was talking about it in one exchange John captured. And he said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. He said LockBit would keep updating its infrastructure until stealing a victim's data became something anyone could do. And then, to top it all off, he did something big, something no one had even dared to do. He upended the ransomware payment model. Now, this may not sound like a revolutionary concept, but actually, LockBit was tackling one of the biggest problems in the cybercriminal world, paying people. It's not just about getting a victim to pay a ransom. That was relatively easy. The issue was paying all the people who worked on the attack, the backroom people. Traditionally, ransomware groups use subcontractors. They call them affiliates. Think of them as specialists. People who might be particularly good at searching for vulnerabilities or cracking into networks. Each hacker would do the specific thing they're good at and then collect that percentage of the ransom. At least, they were supposed to. A lot of the time, like subcontractors more generally, they just didn't get paid. And that was a fear, and it was a concern that, that was talked about a lot and still is talked about a lot on these criminal forums. Lockbit's solution? Flip the script. Put the affiliates in charge. You as the affiliate, you do the negotiation and collect that money yourself, and then you pay us our percentage. And that inherently gives them trust and removes that fear of getting ripped off. Once he did that, affiliates were banging down the doors to work with him. 
And Lockbit suddenly had more ransomware work than it knew what to do with, which explains why Lockbit has become what it is today, responsible for, remember, 44% of all ransomware attacks last year. As they tell you in business school, delegate and partner with the right people, and you'll be unstoppable. When we come back, we hear from someone on the receiving end of LockBit's product development efforts. These folks are doing nothing but spending time developing software, how to shut us down and how to penetrate systems. How do you compete against that? And learn more about the man who made LockBit what it is today. Stay with us. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Last summer, John DiMaggio was in a chat room when LockBit started crowing about its latest victim. It was a small Canadian town called St. Mary's. The, the, basically, the conversation on that, though, was uh, almost like high fives and laughing at the victim themselves, you know, uh, poking fun and how easy it was to compromise and things of that nature. Think of it as the hacker version of locker room talk. The attackers went into these hacker forums and began talking about what they just stole. They like to go through the data to find sort of the most embarrassing um, aspects of it and, and share stuff. And it, it's usually, it's very much like an online bully. It's very much, you know, picking on the victim, talking trash about the victim, and trying to expose their most vulnerable aspects as though it's some big joke. But it doesn't feel like some big joke on the other end. And you feel like the world's going to end as you get into it more and more, and you think, you know, what has happened? It's like being robbed. It's like we we're invaded and robbed. It was a smash and grab. This guy was on the other end of that lockbit attack that Joe watched them crow about in the forums. My name is Al Strathdean. I'm the mayor of the town of St. Mary's, which is a, a town of around 7,700 in southwestern Ontario. St. Mary's IT department discovered hackers in the city's network in July 2022. They were doing some routine maintenance on our systems, and they discovered some irregularities. That's cyber attack speak for there appears to be someone in the servers who isn't supposed to be there. So they immediately isolated the system and unplugged the servers. And remember those push notifications? The thing that LockBit launched so ransomware attackers could track their victims? Well, that may have happened to Al. Our initial thought is they didn't even know they hit us when they, when they had, you know, and, and whether they have systems that went back and, and discovered that we had discovered or something, went, an alarm went off. He's still waiting for the final report to tell him that. We're not, and I'm not privy to that information yet. So when people said, hey, this is LockBit, were you stunned? Because it's kind of a, they're kind of a big deal ransomware organization. I, I was stunned, actually. And one of the interesting things about LockBit is, is that there has been instances where you can actually rent this software from LockBit. You maybe heard about this and, and they take a cut, which means that it could have been anyone. In other words, it may not have been LockBit itself that hacked them, but one of those affiliates LockBit had learned how to attract. He said that the attack made clear to him that everyone is pretty vulnerable and everyone has to prepare for a ransomware attack now. 
You talk a lot about roads and sewers and, and, and different things like sidewalks and things as being infrastructure. IT is becoming infrastructure as well, and we have to start thinking of it more, and we need to spend more money, a lot more money than we ever expected. So who does this kind of thing? Who thinks a hospital or a small city or a school is a legitimate target? That's what the analyst John DiMaggio really wanted to understand, the humans behind all these attacks. John used to do this kind of analysis for government intelligence agencies. So after spending more than a year lurking in chat rooms, lobbing questions, watching the interactions, what he thinks he pieced together is this. Lockbit Sub is a white male living in Russia or Eastern Europe. He's in his mid to late 30s, and he grew up poor. He says that he was picked on being not having money and not having a lot of friends. So because of that, that, that sort of builds in these insecurities. And then when you get a lot of success, that breeds a very strong ego that is insecure. Lockbit sees himself as a prince of darkness, like a Batman villain of ransomware bent on sowing destruction. One of his latest things is to make ransomware even more destructive. He says Lockbit is going to start broadening its repertoire. It's now going to start including DDoS, or denial-of-service attacks, in Lockbit operations. They want to crash servers. I am looking for doses. We ran one of his chat messages through an AI voice. We will now attack targets and provide triple extortion, encryption, data leaks, and DDoS attacks. Why the change? Because he says DDoS attacks invigorate him and, in his words, make life more interesting. Just a little glimpse into this weird kind of Batman supervillain persona he's assembling. You gotta admit, I played this stinking city like a harp from hell. <laughs> but here's the thing about so-called supervillains like the Penguin or Lockbit Sub. Down deep, they have issues. For all their bravado, they're a little insecure. And in Lockbit's case, maybe less surprisingly, he's super paranoid. He's really worried he's going to get caught. His paranoia prevents him from ever being able to enjoy all this money that he has and all the things that he actually wants to do. He can't travel to places. He can't, you know, go on vacation or, or, or leave certain areas of the world. And because of all of this, he, he doesn't seem happy. So John took all this stuff he gleaned from inside Lockbit's talks channel, and he put it into a 69-page report. He's called it Ransomware Diaries, Volume 1, and we have a link on our webpage. He gave us an early look, which is what we used to put together this episode. John assumes once the report goes public, any persona he used to get all that information will be burned. But he maintains that the whole exercise was an important one. Because people are so focused on the technical aspects of ransomware, they forget the people behind those attacks are only human. Remembering that, he says, provides a roadmap on how to topple groups like Lockbit. And how would he do it? Play on its leader's paranoia. Use information campaigns against him. Make him nervous. Um, more nervous. Which could explain why, when I asked John what he'd say to Lockbit now, he said, Watch your back. You know, there's researchers, there's analysts, there's law enforcement agencies, the entire governments that are coming for you. So well, you have to sit there every day and look over your shoulder. And when it's hard to sleep at night, uh, that makes me smile.
This is Click Here. some of the big cyber and intelligence stories of the past week. France's data protection regulator, the Commission Nationale de l'Information et de Liberté, leveled a $5.4 million fine against TikTok for allegedly making it difficult for users to opt out of their tracking. According to the CNIL, the fine isn't related to the ongoing debate over TikTok's privacy settings. Instead, this has to do with TikTok.com's cookie banner. There's a single-click option for users to accept all cookies that might track them, but no correspondingly simple option to refuse them. Under the European Union's data protection law, websites are required to withhold all marketing cookies and trackers from users' browsers until they've received explicit permission from those users to go ahead and deploy them. Researchers at Sentinel-1 have identified a group of pro-Russian hackers known as NoName057 as using Telegram and GitHub to launch DDoS, or Distributed Denial of Service Attacks, against Ukraine and several NATO countries. The group has been targeting candidate websites in the Czech presidential elections, as well as assorted businesses and organizations in Poland and Lithuania. Sentinel-1 says the group is also responsible for a recent disruption of services in Denmark's financial sector. Sentinel-1 told The Record that the group may be paying people to launch these DDoS attacks. While other pro-Russian hacking groups like Killnet have made international news, No Name 057 has been flying under the radar. And finally, NSA Director General Paul Nakasone made a pitch for keeping the targeted Internet surveillance program known as Section 702. It allows U.S. intelligence and law enforcement to track the communications of non-U.S. citizens. Nakasone said 702 had played an irreplaceable role in helping the agency fend off ransomware attacks and prevent weapons components from reaching adversaries. He didn't provide much detail about those operations, aside from saying that without 702, it would have been hard to interdict them. Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, is set to sunset at the end of the year. Its renewal is expected to be contentious. Critics argue that collecting information on the communications of non-Americans overseas can't help but sweep up innocent Americans in the process. Click Here is a production of Recorded Future News. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, your host, writer, and executive producer. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director, and Will Jarvis is our producer and helps with our writing. Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski are our editors, Darren Ancrum is our fact checker, and Ben Levingston composes our theme. We use other music from Blue Dot Sessions. Gabriella Glick is our intern. And we want to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts, and connect with us by email at clickhere at recordedfuture.com or on our website at clickhereshow.com. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. We'll be back on Tuesday.
Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.